All right, well, good morning. Sorry to get my props in place, sorry. Good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I'm going to do something today that I, I don't think at least that I've done in the past, like I've been here for more than 20 years, and my memory is not as good as it used to be. So, you know, maybe some of you long-timers will go, oh, no, that's not the case, because in 2002, um, that's possible. But here's what I'm going to do that I don't think I've done in the past. I'm going to talk about wealth and money and possessions for two weeks in a row. So if you are new to us and you were here last week and now you're here and you're going, man, they talk about this every week. Next week, we're talking about prayer. So don't worry. Now, I have done this in certain seasons of time in which, for example, we wanted to build a building. You know, we looked at our facilities and we went, okay, for the sake of our strategy, for our mission, for our vision, for our purposes here, for what God has called us to do, we need to renovate this, we need to build this, we need to buy that. So like 10 or 12 years ago, just to give you my favorite example, uh, we bought a fourplex six blocks south of here. And then we renovated the fourplex and then together with another ministry here in town that, that we partnered with to provide housing to homeless single moms, we put it to use and we call it the Rio House. And the reason that it was my favorite example is because it was a season of time in which as a church here, we actually had needs and they were super obvious. So for example, our carpet was terrible. I mean, it was horrific. It was embarrassing. I would come in here on Saturday mornings, you know, because I work on Saturdays in part to get ready for today and with a scissors and I would walk around and clip all the little things. And the reason I did that is I have this vivid memory of, of this little boy and he grabbed one of the strings and then he just ran, you know, and it's going, and I'm seeing like, it felt like there was smoke coming out of the carpet, you know, it was awful. The chairs were, they were done. Like the little plastic things on the legs were, some of them were missing. So, you know, you'd sit there and you'd do like this, you know, like every time you moved and but as a community, we said, well, man, listen, we, at that po- point in our history, it would have been painful for us to draw out of our reserves to pay for new carpet and new chairs. And we said, we're still not going to do it. This is a minor irritation. This is, this is nothing compared to the fact that we've got people in our community sleeping in their cars. We can deal with crummy carpets and do a little like this. I mean, if you get here early, which, you know, almost none of you do. But anyway, <laughs> just, just keeping it real, man. If you get here early, you can test out the chairs, you know, and get the one you want, and that is your own reward. But what was awesome in that season is we had two families. One came forward and said, listen, we love what we're doing with the Rio House, and and we've given money to that. How much is the carpet? And they bought us all new carpet. And then we had another family saying the same thing. How much are the chairs? And they bought us all new chairs. So whoever you are, Thank you for that. That was amazing, and we appreciate it, and we don't have to do this or get our heels snagged in the seams. It was actually becoming an issue. So I don't typically talk about this two weeks in a row, and I think part of the reason for that, and again, if you're new, this might be helpful to you as well, is because of the way that we tend to study through the Bible. Not all the time, but usually we study through books of the Bible. We start at the beginning, we end at the end, and in between, you know, we just pick up wherever we left off the previous week, which is a wonderful way to study the scriptures. It's not the only way, but it's a really great way. I mean, one of the advantages is it fully forms your people. You know, it leaves you with nowhere to run with regard to any particular topic, if you think about it, because there are topics that are less fun to talk about. And you can't skip it without being noticed when you're just preaching through a book. It's pretty profound. And usually, you know, when you're preaching through a book of the Bible, whatever it happens to be, it doesn't deal with the topic of money more than once or and not certainly not twice in a week. Or if it looks like it's a lot, you put it all together and you go, here, here's what 
these two chapters are saying, and that's the way that it works. But what we're doing right now is a little bit differently. So what we're doing now is we're studying through some of the parables of Jesus, and maybe what you need to know today is that 42% of the parables of Jesus are either directly about money or they take money and use it as an example to teach a spiritual lesson. 42%. Sit in that for a second. And that's kind of indicative of the teachings of Jesus overall. He talks more about money than he does heaven. He talks more about it than he does hell. He talks more about it than he does faith and prayer combined. Why? Because he knows that every human being has a heart. In every heart, there is a throne. And on every throne at all times, there's something or someone and the number one rival to him, and this is what he wants, is the throne of your heart, our possessions. It's our wealth. So the question for us today is not, does Jesus talk a lot about money? He talks way more about it than I do. The question is, when Jesus talks about money, do we listen to what he says? And I hope that you are listening today because Jesus is going to come to you with investment advice. And this is the single greatest investment opportunity in the universe. If it's true, there's no way around that statement. It has to be. It's remarkable. So we're going to look at a parable today that we find in Luke chapter 16. And Jesus in Luke chapter 16 is talking to a large crowd of people. And there are two different parts of this crowd that are singled out in this particular chapter. So you have the Pharisees, who we'll see toward at the end of the study. The Pharisees, who are specifically noted to be lovers of money. And then you have the disciples of Jesus. It's who he's talking about, even though everybody else here in the crowd is listening. He's speaking to the disciples, as we'll see. And by definition, what is a disciple of Jesus? It's a lover of Jesus. So you have lovers of money, you have lovers of Jesus. And part of what the parable teaches is that you can't be both. At least not at the same time. Now, here's what you can be. You can be somebody who's learning to love Jesus more than money. But your heart is a throne, and the throne is occupied. There is no one higher, no one greater, no one like our God. That's Christ, and what he wants is for you to worship him. So we pick up our study today in Luke 16, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says that Jesus also said to his disciples, who again are part of the crowd, but they're just a part of the crowd. He tells a story. He says there was a rich man who had a manager into whose hands this rich man placed all of his great wealth. And I added that part to the story because that's what's happening here. So you have a rich man. He is very wealthy. You have a manager. He has no wealth at all, but he has the ability to use to manage the managers or the rich man's wealth. And so what is he supposed to do? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, if you're the rich man, He's supposed to manage my wealth in accordance with my purposes, my causes, my mission, my kingdom. You get the idea? And that is exactly what this guy has apparently failed to do because you continue and it says in charges were brought to the rich man that his manager was wasting his possessions. What I love about that statement is it doesn't tell us how. It's like Jesus says, listen, there's a million ways that you can waste the possessions of the rich man in your life who is God. So I'm not going to single in on one of them because then you'll think, well, that's not the way I'm doing it. So the story doesn't apply to me. He's like, no, no, no. I'm just going to gather them all up and say, listen, let's talk. He applies the story to everyone. He's ambiguous on the how, but he's not ambiguous about the fact that the rich man owns it all, that the manager owns nothing, but that the manager has a fiduciary duty, a, a sacred responsibility to manage the rich man's assets in a way that promotes the rich man's purposes, and he's certainly not ambiguous about the fact that this guy has failed to do so. 
And so then the manager, or the rich man rather, calls the manager, this is verse 2, into his office, and he says to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. Translation, you are fired, but I don't know where all my money is. I mean, I don't even know what I own at this point. Like, who owes me what? What have you done with it all? I need a final accounting. And the key to understanding the story is this. It is that it is understood within the context of this story that it's going to take some time for the manager to put the accounting together. I mean, this man's assets are vast. And that during that window of opportunity, that period of time that he's putting the accounting together, at the end of which is the end of his job, he still has the ability to use the rich man's assets. He speaks with authority in regard to their disposition. And so what does this guy do? This manager, verse 3, starts thinking only about himself. It's He's very selfishly interested, but what's interesting is that Jesus is appealing in this story to our self-interest. Like he's going somewhere with this, and he's going to go, it's in your best interest. Anyway, this guy thinks only to himself. He said to himself, what shall I do since, A, my master is taking my management away from me, B, I own absolutely nothing. C, I can't go out and get another job as a manager because they're going to call this guy and he's going to go, no, run, run from this guy. D, he takes a look at himself. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig, so manual labor is out of the question for him. And E, I am too ashamed, or really I am too proud to beg. So he analyzes his situation and realizes, okay, I have one option. He says, I have decided what I am going to do so that when I am removed from management, that is to say, when this little window of opportunity during which I still have the authority to manage the rich man's assets, and in this case, to manage them in a way that benefits me, is over what will happen. People will take care of me. They'll receive me into their houses and they'll take care of me because they're so grateful for what I have done for them at my master's expense. And here's his plan. He says, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? The debtor said 100 measures of oil, which is the annual yield of about 150 olive trees or three years worth of wages. Notice what he does. The manager said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. He cuts two thirds off. And he said to another debtor, how much do you owe? And the man said, 100 100 measures of wheat, which is enough to feed 150 people for a year. Seven and a half years worth of wages. He says, okay, fine. Take your bill and write 80. And on and on he went, debtor by debtor, person by person, all of them getting super excited because they're seeing what's happening here to all the people who are stepping up in line before them. It's like, forgiven this much, forgiven this much, forgiven this much, forgiven this much. And at his master's expense... He indebts all of the debtors of his master to himself so that when he's out of a job and he can't get a good recommendation and he's not going to work and he's not going to beg, he's got nothing. He's done. He's retired. But he has to survive somehow. All of these people will take care of him. Why? Because it's understood in this culture that if somebody is generous or benevolent toward you, that you are then obligated to be generous and benevolent toward them. So he's like, hey, man, I just cut your bill by two-thirds. I'm spending the first three years with you. And then I'm going to you for five and you for two. I'm really looking forward to this. Ten for you in the back. And if I'm still alive after that, I'm just going to start showing up at the rest of your homes. Understand that. What a retirement program this guy has. He's set. 
It's amazing. It's something. It's a wicked plan, but it is a brilliantly wicked plan. And Jesus agrees that it is a brilliantly wicked plan. Listen to what he does. Jesus has the master. When the master discovers what the manager is, what does the master do? The master commended the dishonest manager for what? Is dishonesty? No. For his shrewdness. It's a word that means wisdom or sensibility or prudence. In other words, he's commending this guy for seeing and seizing the opportunity that he had, that little short window of time during which he had the ability to use the master's wealth to advantage himself and set himself up for the future. And then Jesus looks at his disciples, but in the presence of everybody else who happens to be there, including the Pharisees who are specifically noted later in this to be lovers of money, he speaks to us. And he says, for the sons of this world, meaning people like this dishonest manager, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. That is to say, they're better at seeing and seizing opportunities to set themselves up for the future than are the sons of light, than are you guys, than are my own disciples, he says. And then he gives us his financial advice. Does Jesus talk about money all the time? It's not the question. It's when he speaks, do we listen? So hear what he says. He says, and I tell you, my disciples, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous or worldly wealth. That is to say, by means of the riches of this world that God has entrusted to you in this little window of opportunity called your life. Do this in such a way as to set yourself up for the future. He says, so that when it fails, meaning when your life is over and the window is closed and you can't manage God's wealth anymore in this life in this way, they, these people who came to faith in Jesus because you clothed them or you fed them or you put them up in the Rio house or or you funded ministries in Ukraine or wherever, you used it in such a way as to advance the kingdom of God and to bring them the gospel. Okay, that those people might receive you into the eternal dwelling that there will be theirs and that will be yours in the eternity that comes on the backside of the end of that window of opportunity where there is an accounting. How did you use it? So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that God owns everything, that we own nothing. We're managers. And then as managers, we have a fiduciary duty, a sacred responsibility to use what he has given to us, see last week, to advance his purposes, his his mission, his kingdom. He's saying that we have a window of opportunity to do that, and the window of opportunity is the life that we're living right now. And what he's trying to get us to do is to see and seize the opportunity that we have right now to do exactly that, to use his wealth to set ourselves up for a reward that lasts forever. That's why I have the rope up here with me. I know that was weird. I come up with a rope. You're like, what in the world? About every four years, I break out the rope. I did. Oh, thanks. He digs the rope, right? Like, I mean, I texted uh, our facilities director. I'm like, hey, man, you know the rope with the red tape on the end? Like, do we still have that? And, uh, and apparently we do. But I want you to let this rope represent your eternal future. Like, you're going to live forever, So this is forever, which means the rope's too short. I mean, if you think about it, it's a rope that never ends if it's going to accurately represent it. But I I feel like we've got enough footage here to make the point. What's the red part? It's the part you're living in right now. This is your life in this world, the red part. What's Jesus saying to you? He's going, why do you only focus on the red part? 
Why is the red part the only part you think about? Like, why do you work and work and work and save and save and save so that if, and it's an if, you make it to the last half inch of just the red part, you can enjoy it. Nothing wrong with working hard. Bible commends it. Nothing wrong with saving. The Bible commends it. Nothing wrong with enjoying what God has given. The Bible commends it. He's just going, but guys, what about all this stuff? What are you going to do with this? What about this? Why, Why do you spend all of your time and energy and effort and so forth in the little bit of time you have? The red part? Storing up for yourselves treasures that you're going to leave entirely behind at the end of the red part when you can instead use it to store up for yourselves treasures that will actually be yours and that you can use for forever and ever and ever and ever. I mean, look, if it's true, you know, that's as good of a deal as you can find. It's better. And it's not just the shrewd thing to do, the wise thing to do, the prudent thing to do, the sensible thing to do. It's the faithful thing to do. He's calling you to be a faithful steward. He's calling me to be a faithful steward, unlike the unfaithful steward. We don't have to be dishonest. It's dishonest when we don't do that. Listen to what he says, verse 10. He says, one who is faithful in what? A very little. What what is he referring to there? Everything that we amass in this life he does, he's like, I don't care if you're a billionaire. It doesn't matter. It's just a little. You're going to leave it all behind. I mean, what is a billion dollars compared to one dollar that you're able to have for eternity? He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth of this world that God has entrusted you to manage in this life, for his benefit, well then, who will entrust to you what? The true riches of heaven. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, what we have here is his. Okay. Well, then who will give you that which is actually your own? And then Jesus closes with this. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, he can be on a journey of learning to love one more than the other. But you cannot serve both God and money. And then Luke says that the Pharisees, who were what? They were lovers of money, so there they are, heard all of these things, and instead of listening to Jesus and seeing and seizing the opportunity that he has given to all of us, including to them, I mean, they were there, they heard it, they ridiculed Jesus, which brings us back to our question, which is not, does Jesus talk about this topic a lot? He does. It's when he talks about it, do we listen? And what's kind of cool from my perspective today is like I'm not coming to you from a position of need. And I'm not saying that we're a ministry that we don't have needs. and We have needs, but like there's no crisis. There's nothing we're trying to buy. We're not trying to build anything. I'm sure that day will change and that day will come. And, and in that day, I'll let you know, you know, and we'll talk about it. So from that position, it's kind of nice for me to just go, are you listening? You know, the Bible comes to us and it talks to us about this thing called tithing. It's like we're all allergic to that topic. There's a heart. There's a throne. There's a something. There's a someone on it. God's like, listen, 100% of it is mine. I'm going to let you keep 90%. And for your spiritual good, here's what I want you to do. Take 10% of it regularly and offer it as a sacrifice of worship. It's why we do that in worship as a part of the worship 
service. Because honestly, every one of us, me too, needs to take this and go, ah, here, you're higher, you're greater. There's no one and nothing like you. And then beyond that, the Bible comes and says, listen, I want you to hold everything with an open hand because you have me. I am your safety. I am your security. I am one you find your identity. And you're significant because you're a son or daughter of mine, not because of what you have or what you're able to accumulate or amass or impress anybody with. It is not the applause of men that make you valuable. It is, it is the fact that I gave the life of my son for you that demonstrates your great value. So that's settled. Hold it like this and then use it as I tell you. What are you passionate about? What do you love? What burdens has the Lord placed on your heart? Have you looked out to see what the Christian community is doing in this community and around the world? MTW, great example today. But we have ministry partner after ministry partner after ministry partner. I got a call from a friend of mine or actually texted me, okay, what do you know about this guy? What do you, what do you know about this ministry? What do you, you know? I gave him all this information because he's looking to invest in eternity. Lord, what do you want me to invest in? How do you want to use me? Both my gifts and talents, and oftentimes that's the more valuable thing, but then also in our dollars that I might be broken of the undying temptation to trust in this instead of you. Jesus talks about it. Do we listen? So when I was a kid, my dad, uh, who's a commercial developer, back then he's retired now, but um, now he just collects rent, which is an awesome way to live, by the way. So think about that, okay? But back in the 70s, when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, he, as investments, he bought some fruit groves. So he had an avocado grove, he had a lime grove, and probably had other groves I didn't know about. But what that meant for me as a kid of 13-ish is that occasionally on a Saturday, I had a job. And I didn't want the job, I'm going to be honest. I did not want to do this. But my dad has a whistle. I think pretty much every dad has a whistle. I have a whistle. It's the whistle that you use when like you go to the store with your family and everybody goes in 19 directions and you're trying to figure out where they're at, you know, and you use the whistle and then they're like, hey, we're over here, you know, and then you, you find each other. Well, <laughs> on those Saturday mornings at about, you know, 6.45 a.m., meanwhile, I want to sleep till 2 p.m., but anyway, I'd hear the whistle. Like to this day, the whistle irritates me, okay? Like... I'm 56. I don't want to hear the whistle, Dad. He's out. He's he's watching. I'd hear the whistle from down the hall, and I'm like, "Oh no, it's one of those days," you know. And so after the whistle got louder and closer and louder and closer, and then I was stripped of my blankets, and they literally put ice cubes in my underwear at times. Like there were all kinds of things that were needed to do to compel this moody, lazy teenager to get out of bed, and that's exactly who I was in that moment. I'd finally get up. My mom would have breakfast. I'd eat breakfast, and she would have this cooler made, and it was full of Gatorade and sand. Like, there was enough food for five people for three days. And we'd throw it in the back of this old truck that we had as a third vehicle. I so desperately wish that we still had that truck. That was my first vehicle, Ford F-150. Loved that thing. It's a classic now. No idea where it is. And we'd drive out with some machetes and gloves and stuff to one of these groves, you know, so we'd get to the grove and... I mean, we didn't speak the whole way there because, we're, first of all, we're men. And secondly, I'm 
trying to sleep, you know. So we'd just get there. I knew the drill. I'd get out. I'd unlock the lock and take off the chain, and I'd open the gate, you know. And and then he would drive the truck in, and then I'd get in the truck, and then we'd drive into the grove, and we'd stop wherever he wanted me to start for the day. And my job was to go in between the trees with the machete and to cut down the stuff that's growing up in between the trees. Because, like, the mower could mow the rows, but the mower couldn't get in between the trees in the row. And so stuff would grow up, vines would grow up, whatever. So my dad, who realizes what he's dealing with in me, says, like, I'm not going to pay you by the hour. So here's the financial arrangement. I'm going to leave, and then I'm going to come back. (laughs) And I never knew when, by the way. (laughs) I had no idea. This was way before cell phones, guys. I mean, if I needed to get a hold of them, what happened one time is I'm hacking away with this machete and I hit a branch and there was a wasp nest. And the wasps just, you know, like I threw the machete. I'm like running, screaming. I got like five wasp bites on my arm. I had three up my neck and one like by my ear. My face blew up, my arm. What am I going to do, you know? <laughs> I'm, I iced it down and went back to work. I mean, that was, all, that was the only option I had. I'm going to leave. I'm going to come back. When I come back, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to inspect your work. I'm going to look at how many rows you did, and I'm going to see if you did a good job. And if you didn't do a good job or you didn't get much done, you know, you just sat here for six hours throwing stones at a sprinkler and see how many times you could hit it because there's no video games. There's nothing else to do, honestly, out there, and you're by yourself. You know, then you're not going to get paid much. But if you kick it into gear, you could actually get paid more than working by the hour. And most of the time, I mean, I was hating being there, but I was there anyway. So I thought, well, heck, you know, I should make some money. And I did. But what made it work? One thing. It was that I believed my dad to be a man of his word. He spoke, I listened. He said, hey, you know what? I'm leaving, I'm coming back. I'm like, yep. He said, when I get back, I'm going to inspect your work. I said, yep. When I inspect your work, if you've done a good job, I'll pay you more. I thought, yep. When I get back and I offer you, I can afford it. I'm thinking you bought the Grove. I'm 13. I'm cheap, man. Like, I'm not going to cost you much. What is it going to, it's like a $40 day, you know, in 1976. That's big time. You can do it. That's what makes all this work too. Jesus is either a man of his word or he isn't, and that changes everything. Everything about the way we behave, everything about our attitude toward this topic, and everything about what we do and what we do reveals what we think. Doesn't it? So what has he said? He's like, hey, God, he's the rich man in your story. He owns it all. He's entrusted it to you to be managed. And you can live off of it, of course. You can enjoy it understood. The manager's needs are met. The manager has a certain kind of lot. Got it. But he has given and entrusted it to you to be managed in accordance with his kingdom, with his purposes, to advance his mission. And hey, here's the deal. At the end, there will be an accounting. He'll inspect your work. And what did you do? And he will reward you. And oh, by the way, he can afford it. If you think about it, It makes no sense to just live for this if this exists and if Jesus is truthful. So the Lord speaks. 
Talks about all kinds of things. Next week, he'll talk about prayer. You're welcome. But he talks about this. He's challenging your heart, what's on the throne. And he's offering to reward you for the use of what he himself has given to you. My goodness, how awesome must he be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a generous God. Lord, you withhold nothing from your people. If you did not withhold your son from us, what else will you withhold? God, we praise you for Jesus and for the generosity of a life perfectly lived and then laid down as a perfect sacrifice in place of all of our imperfections, covering our failures and our idolatries and all the ways that we have sung. There is no one higher to someone else, to something else. And usually to this. God, increase our faith. Let us see you. Reveal yourself to us so that it is undeniable that you are the single greatest being in all the universe, that if we possess you, we have everything. If we don't possess you, no matter what we have, we have nothing. And give us faith for your kingdom. Let us find our identity in you, our security in you. Let us believe you when you speak and then not miss the opportunity to be used of you in this life in a way that generates friends for all of eternity. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.